A quick note before we get started. This is part two in a three-part series on Julian Assange. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and start there. And now, here we go. The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. On a typical night, London's Frontline Club would be full of journalists drinking and swapping stories about reporting from the front lines of wars. But on this night, in November of 2010, the Frontline Club sat dark and empty, like it had for the last several weeks. Well, mostly empty. If someone were conducting surveillance on the Frontline Club tonight, it would have seen an elderly woman slip out the back door. She was hunchbacked. If she weren't, she would have stood over six feet tall. She scanned the city around her, shadows everywhere. Anyone could be hiding in them. Police, spies, assassins. She felt like she was being watched. Was she being watched? She just couldn't be sure. Every second she was outside, alone and exposed, felt like an hour. Finally, a battered red car pulled up to the curb. She leaned over and looked through the window. Up close, anyone could see that the old woman was no old woman at all. She was Julian Assange. Radical publisher and wanted man, disguised in a house dress and a cheap wig. You look lovely, Assange's aide Sarah Harrison said with a smile. Assange ignored her and looked inside the car. Beside Sarah, there was Christian Hanfrenson, a bearded Icelander who'd been working with WikiLeaks since it set up shop in the country about a year earlier. But Assange didn't recognize the driver. Immediately, he became suspicious. Who's that? Assange said, pointing to the driver. Relax, boss, said Christian. Smith sent him. I've been driving Mr. Smith for years, the driver said cheerfully, opening the passenger door. Hop in. Assange thought about it. His supporter and friend, Vaughn Smith, never mentioned a driver. He could really be anyone, like an agent of a foreign government sent to kill him and his people. But Assange needed to get the hell out of London. With no choice, he sighed and got in. He yanked out the padding he'd shoved under his dress to make himself look hunchbacked, never taking his eyes off the driver. As they began the journey out of the city, Assange thought about the last few months. Earlier this year, he'd published thousands of classified documents exposing truths about the war on terror. He'd also published a video that showed Americans arguably committing war crimes. So yeah, he'd kicked the hornet's nest all right. And there were still more documents left to publish, even more explosive than the last. But recently, a warrant had been filed for Assange's arrest. That was why he'd been hiding at the Frontline Club. The charge was over some bullshit from Sweden, he thought. He knew the Americans were doing everything they could to stop him from publishing the rest of his documents. Hell, they'd been conducting surveillance on him for years. He knew that for a fact. Assange was convinced that the Swedes were working on behalf of the Americans. To him, the charge was nothing more than a thinly veiled character assassination. There were lots of ways to destroy someone without actually having to kill them. Assange knew that. Outside the city, the driver pulled the car to a stop in a roundabout. Assange's heart skipped a beat. Could he have a gun? Assange wondered. Would he really shoot me in front of witnesses? The driver noticed his worry. I'm just stopping to see if anyone's following us. Assange nodded. Christ, he was getting paranoid. 
the drive kept on like that, with the driver periodically pulling over to check for a tail. Finally, hours later, the driver pulled off the freeway and into the town of Ellingham. After a few more minutes, they arrived at their destination, Ellingham Hall, a 10-bedroom, gray-brick mansion built in the 18th century. It was surrounded by woods, perfect concealment for paparazzi or snipers. It would have to do. This was where WikiLeaks would be making its last stand. The final batch of documents didn't just have the potential to end wars, they threatened to upend the entire world order. Assange knew that his days of freedom were numbered. As he looked up at the country manor house, he hoped he'd have enough time left. On this episode, Chelsea Manning, Collateral Murder, and the War in Afghanistan. I'm Keith Corneluk, and this is Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. On this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is part two of the story of Julian Assange. Hey everyone, did you know that in addition to this show, we also produce monthly bonus episodes of Modem Mischief? If you become a patron on Patreon or do a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts, you'll have access to hours of exclusive episodes. You'll learn how Seth Rogen almost started World War III with North Korea, how a dark web drug dealer named OxyMonster got arrested on his way to a beard and mustache convention, even how major celebrities got their accounts hacked and nude photos leaked onto the web. Best of all, it's only five bucks a month to get access to these exclusive bonus episodes. You'll also gain access to our regular show ad-free. But most importantly, you'll be helping this show, which is independently produced by me, stay in business. So go to patreon.com slash modemmischief or click subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Links are also in the show notes. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Sir, with all due respect, you're not listening to me, Chelsea Manning said. Her commanding officer frowned. Oops, she thought. Probably shouldn't have said that. She took a deep breath and started again. I apologize, sir, but look, I had the pamphlet translated. It makes no mention of overthrowing the Iraqi government or attacking coalition forces. It's only a critique of the prime minister. If you just read it, you'll see that... Manning, I'm not interested in what it says. Your orders are to find terrorists. You haven't found any terrorists. Well, I can't find any terrorists if there aren't any, Manning said. Go back to your desk and do your job. Manning stood, gave a sarcastic salute, and stormed out of the office and into the harsh Mesopotamian sunshine. Assholes, she thought as she walked through the streets of forward operating base Hammer. It was located 40 miles east of Baghdad, an American oasis in the Iraqi desert. It was used as a staging area for combat missions in the eastern part of the country. Soldiers would crash here for a few days between missions. Uncle Sam had ponied up for a coffee shop, a gym, a shopping center, and even a pizza palace. All the creature comforts to make war a little more bearable, a little more normal. Chelsea fucking hated it. War wasn't normal, and fresh pizza wasn't going to change that.
Since arriving in Iraq seven months ago, specialist Chelsea Manning had quickly learned that army life wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Manning was no frontline soldier. A skilled computer user and occasional hacker in her civilian life, Manning was an intelligence officer. Her job was to identify threats to the American-led coalition and to the fledgling Iraqi government. Since coming to Baghdad, Manning had been given two secure laptops. One was connected to the Defense Department's secret internet protocol router. There, the military transmitted top-secret records about the day-to-day activities of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Manning was just a lowly specialist. And yet, she had access to hundreds of thousands of documents that showed how the war was really going. The everyday carnage, the strategic blunders, the human rights abuses. The side of the wars that the public didn't get to see. The other laptop was connected to the State Department's Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System. This gave her access to hundreds of thousands of cables from embassies around the world. These showed now just what the United States really thought about hundreds of countries. It showed the country systematically abusing less powerful nations. On top of that, Manning had the stress of being a transgender member of the military before the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Act. She joined the military before her transition and went by the name Bradley. She had a boyfriend back in Boston, another hacker named Tyler Watkins. If anyone found out, she'd get a dishonorable discharge. So to say Manning's morale was low was an understatement. The situation with the 15 men and the pamphlet was Manning's breaking point. Manning was assigned to investigate a pamphlet published by 15 men who'd already been arrested. The pamphlet did detail the prime minister's alleged corruption, but it was a far cry from promoting terrorism. The 15 men were expressing their rights as citizens of a democracy, isn't that why the U.S. invaded Iraq in the first place? After being reprimanded by her superior officer, Manning downloaded the two batches of internal reports from the secure network. One batch covered the war in Afghanistan, and the other covered the war in Iraq. When she returned to the United States for a mid-deployment leave, Manning brought the files with her. She didn't have a plan. She didn't even know she was going to do anything with them. Manning visited her boyfriend Tyler in Boston. They fought, so she returned home to Maryland. There, depressed about the ongoing wars, Manning decided to go public. She tried shopping the files to the Washington Post and the New York Times, but one didn't believe her and the other never responded. Then she made an appointment to visit the offices of Politico, but a winter storm forced her to cancel. Fed up, Manning decided to go with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, or as she called him, that crazy white-haired dude. Manning had been following the radical hacktivist blog in her capacity as an intelligence officer. Since her deployment, she'd begun lurking in WikiLeaks chat rooms on IRC and Jabber, two encrypted chat services often used by hackers and activists. When American journalism outlets didn't show interest, Manning uploaded the documents to WikiLeaks' secure server. This was late 2009. By this point, Julian Assange had just moved WikiLeaks from San Francisco to Iceland, which had more lenient laws for whistleblowers. Assange and his second-in-command, Daniel Domscheit-Berg, were living on the third floor of a guest house that belonged to a WikiLeaks supporter, and they were crashing there indefinitely. The two had just spent a road trip traveling around Domscheit-Berg's native Germany, setting up more servers for WikiLeaks. 
These would make it more difficult for WikiLeaks to be taken offline, which a Swiss bank had already tried to do a year before. WikiLeaks had come a long way in its three years of existence, publishing explosive documents about governments in the US, Kenya, Switzerland, Iceland, and more. Assange was proud of their work. They'd won awards for it. But they hadn't yet changed the world and hadn't yet become a household name. Enter Chelsea Manning or as she was known on IRC and Jabber, Dog Network. At first, Assange ignored her. At the time, WikiLeaks was receiving regular document uploads from all around the world. It didn't have the staff to personally review the hundreds of thousands of pages that Manning had sent in. But this Dog Network was persistent. Knowing WikiLeaks was now in Iceland, Dog Network had dug up some internal State Department documents showing that the UK was taking advantage of Iceland after Iceland's recent financial meltdown. That got Assange's attention. Soon, he reached out to Dog Network on Jabber under the handle Ox. He was interested in Dog Network and where they'd obtained the documents, but he knew they wouldn't be able to share any personal details. Likewise, Assange wouldn't be providing any revealing information about himself. They would have to operate in secret to protect their identities, but it also made it difficult to trust each other. When Assange reviewed some of the documents Dog Network first sent over, including daily reports from the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, it was obvious that Dog Network was a legitimate source within the United States military. But Assange sensed Dog Network had more to give. He began to work Dog Network. He could tell that Dog Network was generally miserable but also smart, passionate, and genuinely interested in doing good. Dog Network needed a friend. Assange could use that. Assange and Dog Network spoke daily. Assange indulged his source in lengthy political discussions about whistleblowing, the media, or just life in general. He sympathized with her feelings of alienation and isolation and with her frustration with the wars. Assange was patient. After several weeks, he asked Dog Network if there was anything else he had access to. Dog Network told him about the State Department cables. Assange wanted them badly. But Dog Network had already stolen two huge batches of documents. She worried that downloading anything else would attract attention. Assange suggested that Dog Network use an administrative account. He walked her through how to hack into the account's password. She did, and soon, the State Department cables were in Assange's inbox. Once again, Assange's pass as one of Melbourne's most notorious hackers was coming in handy. Altogether, Dog Network sent WikiLeaks close to 500,000 daily reports about the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, and about 250,000 State Department cables. Assange knew he wasn't just sitting on one bombshell, he was sitting on thousands. But Assange also knew that WikiLeaks couldn't simply publish the documents and hope the world would be outraged. They'd already tried that with the Guantanamo Bay Manual and the Battle of Fallujah report. He needed something more attention-grabbing. One day, Assange got a message from Dog Network. Check this out, it said. There was an attached file. It was a Freedom of Information request from the news agency Reuters. On July 12, 2007, two Iraqi journalists working for Reuters were killed in Baghdad. Reuters requested the U.S. military reports on their deaths, but the military refused on the grounds that it was classified. Now, check your Dropbox, Dog Network said. Assange opened up WikiLeaks' encrypted Dropbox. There was a zip file. 
Inside was a video, about 38 minutes long. Assange could see that it had been recorded from an American attack helicopter, an Apache with a call sign Crazy Horse 18. The timestamp said July 12, 2007, the date of the journalist's deaths. On the video, Assange could see a crowd of about 20 Iraqi men walking casually. Some held AK-47s and RPGs, others were unarmed. See that crowd, Dog Network wrote. The journalists are with them. Crazy Horse's pilots could be heard radioing their superior officers. Request permission to engage, the pilot said. Roger that, you're free to engage, over. The crowd of men collapsed. Assange felt a chill come over himself. They murdered them, he thought. The video continued. Soon, a van pulled up to the bodies. Two people got out and tried to help. Good Samaritans, clearly unarmed. But the helicopter pilots opened fire again. Ha <laughs> I hit him, said one of the pilots. Look at those dead bastards, said another. Minutes later, American ground forces arrived at the scene and radioed what they saw to the helicopter. I've got 11 Iraqi KIAs, one small child wounded. In fact, there were two wounded children. They'd been in the backseat of the van when it was attacked. When informed they had shot children, one of the pilots said, It's their fault for bringing kids into a battle. The video ended. Assange took in what he just watched. The U.S. military wounding children and killing 11 Iraqis, two unarmed journalists, and two good Samaritans. To Assange, this was a war crime. But it was also exactly what WikiLeaks needed. Publishing documents detailing atrocities is one thing. A video is something else. It's immediate. It's visual. You can see people's faces as they're shot. Assange brought it to one of his closest WikiLeaks supporters, Birgitta Jonasdottir. She was a member of Iceland's parliament, who'd been voted into office following the country's financial crisis. She was 42, a poet, anarchist, and an activist in the civil liberties movement. Jonas' daughter immediately understood the video's potential. She felt that the video should serve as a centerpiece of all the documents WikiLeaks still had yet to publish. Assange agreed. They needed to edit the video down to a condensed version with context and commentary. Assange already had a name in mind. Collateral murder. His second-in-command, Daniel Domscheit-Berg, questioned whether it was appropriate to give the video such a loaded title. He also questioned whether WikiLeaks should even edit the video and not just publish it raw. WikiLeaks had always committed to publishing documents unedited and uncensored. Didn't this violate their core principles? But to Assange, the video had to be enhanced to give it the maximum impact. What was the point of publishing anything if nobody paid attention to it? Assange overruled them. He was editor-in-chief, after all. Birgitta Jonas' daughter rented a cottage in Reykjavik and furnished it with editing equipment. Assange and Domscheit Berg arranged a press conference on April 5th in Washington, D.C. to present the video. This gave them just a few months to get collateral murder ready. Assange rarely left his computer. He stopped bathing. At one point, Jonas' daughter gave him an impromptu haircut while he worked. She was getting tired of him. First, he'd been a shameless flirt, repeatedly making advances despite her lack of interest. He'd finally given up, but now he was making her feel like his stepmom. Finally, days before the deadline, Assange logged onto the WikiLeaks IRC page and wrote a farewell message to his allies. I'm off to end the war. With that, he and a small team boarded a plane to Washington, D.C. 
Assange had tried to figure out whether the Americans were aware that the video had been stolen or that he was planning to unveil it. He just couldn't be sure. But the plane landed and Assange passed through customs. Nobody seemed to recognize him. Assange and his team spent a tense night in D.C., just miles away from officials who would surely love to arrest them. Or worse. The next morning, they arrived at the National Press Club, where hundreds of journalists had gathered to see WikiLeaks' latest release. Assange took the stage. What you're about to see is a very rich story, he said. A video of American soldiers who treat war like a computer game. Their only desire is to kill. Their only desire is to get high scores in that computer game. Collateral murder began with a quote by George Orwell. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. Then, the video began. Assange watched the journalists watching it. A few were moved to tears, but others, many others, appeared unmoved, jaded even. Wankers, he thought. After 18 long minutes, the video came to an end. Assange walked back out on stage. The war crime you've just seen is only the beginning, he said. The United States has committed thousands of collateral murders during its so-called war on terror, and WikiLeaks has the documents to expose them. As Assange began taking questions, across the Potomac River at the Pentagon, the military was scrambling. It had learned what Assange was doing within minutes. Now it had to stop him before he could do any more damage. And it had to find out who his whistleblower was. We are now beginning our final descent into Melbourne. Please stow your tray tables and put your seats in an upright position. Assange looked out the passenger jet window as his hometown came into view. It was May 2010 about a month after he presented the collateral murder video at the National Press Club. And now, he was on the run. The Pentagon responded to collateral murder by placing him on a watch list. The FBI started a Julian Assange task force and was debating charging him with crimes. Assange immediately canceled all speaking engagements in America and bought plane tickets to his native Australia where he hoped he'd be safe. Assange got off the plane and went through customs. As he handed over his passport, the customs agent made a show of scrutinizing it. Your passport's frayed, the customs agent said. Looks like we'll have to get you a new one of these, mate. Assange didn't think it was very frayed, but he agreed. The agent disappeared with the passport. The longer Assange waited, the more nervous he got. He suspected this wasn't a routine passport inspection. He knew the Australian government routinely performed stop alerts on suspicious persons. Typically, customs pretended there was something defective with a passport, which bought them time while they conducted an investigation. Assange couldn't know it, but that was indeed what was happening. While he was waiting, the customs agents were making a detailed report of everywhere his passport had been stamped, tracking Assange's movements and passing the information along to the government. Assange waited for the customs agent to return. Finally, after 30 minutes, he did. Sorry about that, Mr. Assange, but the computer said you were arrested for computer hacking. Want to tell me about that? That was back in 1991, Assange replied flatly. I was 18. Can I have my passport back now? The customs officer nodded and handed it back. Assange quickly went through the turnstile and headed to baggage claim. There, he found two more customs agents. 
They had opened his luggage and were inspecting it. What's going on here? Assange demanded. What are you looking for? Do you have a warrant? Relax, sir, said one with an easy smile. Just had to check one more thing. They zipped up his suitcase and handed it to him. As he left the airport, Assange thought about what had just happened. Yes, the Australian government could be messing with him on its own. WikiLeaks had published a report about websites blacklisted by the Australian government, but Australia could also be working on behalf of the United States of America. The world's only superpower had a long reach. The US wasn't safe, and now Australia wasn't either. Collateral murder had made sure of that. Previously, when WikiLeaks published the Guantanamo Bay Manual and the Battle of Fallujah report, it barely made a blip. This time, there was no ignoring Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Shortly after collateral murder went live, journalists asked the Secretary of Defense Robert Gates for comment. Gates had been the secretary when the original Apache gunship attack took place, and continued in the job when Barack Obama replaced George W. Bush as president. Gates was outraged. He insisted that WikiLeaks was showing the video out of context. He said it was like looking at war through a soda straw. Gates would later call for Julian Assange to be arrested. The White House National Security Chief Jim Jones said collateral murder would put American lives in danger. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mike Mullen said that Assange could have blood on his hands. Assange enjoyed watching the American government officials squirm when presented with the truth, but the media's reaction was a lot more disappointing. Many major news outlets, like CNN and Australia's ABC, only showed brief clips of the video. Others brought in analysts to examine the video. Already, they were spreading doubt about what collateral murder really was. To be fair to the pilots, the two journalists had been walking among a group of armed men. Some argued it was easy to mistake the journalists' cameras for weapons. Reuters news agency, which employed the two journalists, even changed its policies to ban its reporters from walking with crowds of insurgents. As for the wounding of the two children and the killing of the two Good Samaritans, others argued that while it was an unfortunate accident, it was also just the reality of warfare in an urban setting like Baghdad. Civilians were just going to get hurt. Most of all, Collateral Murder's critics argued that it was unfair to view the shooting out of context. A journalist can closely examine a video after the fact. Soldiers, on the other hand, have to make split-second decisions in the heat of battle. Assange was unconvinced. He couldn't stop thinking about how many journalists at the National Press Club seemed unmoved by the video. Assange hated journalists. To Assange, they were a bunch of middle-class cowards. They preferred coming home each night to their spouses to talk about schools for their children. They weren't strong enough to withstand the pressure that comes along with doing the job the way it should be done. To Assange, journalists were complicit with the world's governments in their crimes. This was one of the reasons why he'd started WikiLeaks. Yet, they were also a necessary evil. Assange needed the media to help publicize his story. Assange still had hundreds of thousands of documents left to publish. He had to plan his next move carefully. While Assange was plotting in Melbourne, Chelsea Manning was in Iraq just trying to keep her life together. She'd known when she passed along her information to WikiLeaks that it would one day end up in the news. But now that it had, everything was spinning out of control. The military was searching for her. 
she was self-medicating constantly and her mental health deteriorated. One day, a fellow soldier found her curled up in the fetal position in a closet. A knife was at her feet. She'd used it to carve the words, I want, into a vinyl chair. Later that day, she punched a superior officer in the face, apparently unprovoked. That earned her a meeting with a brigade psychiatrist, who diagnosed her with an adjustment disorder related to her gender identity. The psychiatrist recommended her for discharge. Meanwhile, she was demoted from specialist to private first class and relegated to supply room duty. She never felt more alone. Even WikiLeaks wasn't responding to her messages. Her contact at the organization, Ox, had gone off grid. She was desperate for someone to talk to. So she reached out to another hacker on the periphery of the WikiLeaks scene. His name was Adrian Lamo. He was a WikiLeaks supporter and a famous gray hat hacker. In the 1990s, he'd hacked into websites like AOL Time Warner, Comcast, MCI WorldCom, Microsoft, SBC Communications, and Yahoo. In 2004, he was arrested and sentenced to two years probation for hacking into the New York Times servers and downloading source information, including phone numbers for people like Yogi Berra, Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, and Colin Powell. A former hacker herself, Manning felt like Lamo might be a kindred spirit, someone she could confide in. This time, when Manning reached out to Lamo, she didn't use IRC or Jabber. She used regular old AOL Instant Messenger, where she went by the handle Bradass87. Manning also didn't hide who she was, like when she reached out to Assange. In her very first communication with Lamo, she identified herself as a now-former U.S. Army intelligence analyst. The next day, she began blurting out confessions, admitting that she'd sent WikiLeaks hundreds of thousands of classified documents. I've been so isolated for so long, she wrote. I just want to be nice and live a normal life. But events keep forcing me to figure out how to survive. Smart enough to know what's going on, but helpless to do anything. Their conversations continued for days. Lamo pressed her for details and specifics. What's in the documents she leaked? How much had she leaked? Manning spilled all of it. I can't believe what I'm telling you, she wrote at one point. Lamo certainly related to the feeling of being young, alone, and in trouble. Even so, he began to have reservations about what Manning was telling him. To Lamo, it was like Manning had just grabbed whatever confidential information she could without regard for consequences. Lamo began to worry that Manning might be endangering lives. Or at least, that's what he told reporters. Four days after Manning first contacted him, Lamo had seen enough. He contacted a friend with military intelligence who put him in touch with the FBI. Later that day, Lamo headed to a diner in downtown Sacramento where he met two agents from the local field office. I think I know who's been feeding information to WikiLeaks, Lamo said. Lamo handed the agents a flash drive. On it was a file containing the entire chat logs with Chelsea Manning. Hours later, at forward operating base Hammer, Chelsea Manning was taking inventory in the supply closet when armed military police approached her. Private Manning, you need to come with us. When Manning was arrested, Assange was in Melbourne. Assange didn't tell his WikiLeaks inner circle about the arrest right away. But within a few days, Manning's arrest was an international news story. When the story broke, WikiLeaks decision makers hastily assembled a conference call to decide what to do. How long have you known about the arrest? Brigitte Jonas' daughter began angrily. 
Just for a few days. There wasn't time to inform everyone, Assange replied. My name is on the collateral murder video, Jonas' daughter shouted. I had a right to know. The important thing is that WikiLeaks minimizes its legal exposure, Assange said. What kind of danger are we in here? A WikiLeaks lawyer spoke up. Manning is going to be court-martialed. They're talking about charging her with violating the Espionage Act. The penalty for that could be execution. Around the world, WikiLeaks members gasped. But she should be fine, right? Assange asked. All we did was publish it. Well, that depends, the lawyer said. As long as you didn't do anything to help Manning steal the documents, you should be safe. There was a long pause. You should know that I did help Manning hack into an administrative account, Assange said quietly. Oh, why the hell did you do that? Daniel Domscheit-Berg exploded. This puts everything at risk. It got results, didn't it? Assange snapped. Daniel started out as a friend, but lately he'd been like this. More pushy, more aggressive. Assange was getting sick of him. We need to decide what to do about Manning, Jonas' daughter cut in. They risked everything for us, and now they're in trouble. WikiLeaks can't be seen abandoning her. Assange sat back in his chair and thought it over. We'll release a statement from WikiLeaks supporting Manning, Assange said. And we'll put together some money for a legal defense. Say, 50 grand, which we don't have. The call ended soon after. Assange sat back in his chair and rubbed his eyes. Chelsea Manning was in solitary confinement in Kuwait, and there was little he or anyone else could do about it. Assange was still sitting on hundreds of thousands of confidential documents left to publish. But now, the United States government had shown it was willing to punish whistleblowers with the harshest penalties possible. He had to get these documents out before America could stop him. Assange had always known that he was playing a dangerous game, and now he was closer than ever to losing everything. Julian Assange was running late, as usual, but Nick Davies suspected that Assange enjoyed making them wait. The veteran newspaper reporter scanned the entrance of the cafe in the Hotel Leopold in Brussels, waiting for the lanky, silver-haired Australian to make an appearance. Davies had never met him in person, but almost anyone in the world would recognize him by now. It was June 2010, two months after Assange unveiled collateral murder at the Washington Press Club. Since then, WikiLeaks had become the most searched term on Google. Assange's face was plastered on TV and newspapers around the world. Sitting across the table from Davies was Ian Trainer, his superior at The Guardian as well as the newspaper's Europe correspondent. Davies had been trying to locate Assange for weeks. WikiLeaks was being tight-lipped for security reasons. But when an informant tipped Davies off that Assange was in Brussels, he and Trainer raced over from London. Davies hoped it wasn't just a practical joke. Davies turned to Trainer. Maybe I should try his room again. But then Assange appeared wearing a ball cap and sunglasses. Greetings, esteemed members of the press, Assange said as he pulled up a chair and got down to business. Let's start by talking about the other publications you want to bring into our little joint venture. My editor knows Bill Keller at the New York Times. They seem like a logical choice, Davies suggested. There's also Der Spiegel, the German weekly, said Trainer. Assange nodded. Obviously, this is just the start of the discussion, Assange said. We'll need a lot of media partners to ensure this lands. Davies and Trainer exchanged a look. 
That was vaguely worded. What was Assange up to? But you agreed the Guardian would get the first look at the reports, Davies said, trying to reassure Trainer. I said the Afghanistan reports, Assange replied with a smirk. Well, can we see the Afghanistan reports then? Trainer said pointedly. Assange thought it over, then pulled out his old beat-up laptop. He booted it up, typed on his keyboard, and hit send. There, you have them. Or the first batch of them. I'll be sending more soon. Davies and Trainer quickly took out their laptops and opened up their emails. It says they're encrypted, Davies said. Assange reached over and took a napkin with the Hotel Leopold's logo on it. He circled several words, then wrote, no spaces below it. He handed Davies the napkin. There's your password, Assange said. What about the Iraq reports, Davies pleaded, or the State Department cables? I'm afraid I must be off, Assange said, as he picked up his backpack and disappeared into the city. That meeting at the Hotel Brussels in June 2010 would be a pivotal one for both Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Assange had no love for reporters, yet he badly needed them. Not only could they help publicize his message, they also provided insurance. WikiLeaks could publish the Afghanistan war reports by itself, but the site could easily be shut down by court order, cyber attack, or worse. By publishing the reports alongside a newspaper like The Guardian, WikiLeaks could ensure its message got out. Nick Davies of The Guardian reached out to Assange shortly after Chelsea Manning's arrest. The Guardian and WikiLeaks had worked together many times before. WikiLeaks sent it the explosive Kroll report that exposed corruption by Kenyan President Daniel Arap Moi, and it published in 2007. So The Guardian was a natural fit. But just going with one publication didn't seem safe enough. They needed to spread the operation across multiple countries, which meant multiple newspapers. The New York Times was an obvious choice. In 1971, it published the Pentagon Papers, a series of documents that exposed the truth about the Vietnam War. The documents detailed decades of unreported actions by American military in the Vietnam War. Among them was the secret bombing of Laos and Cambodia, acts of war on neighboring countries. The third paper suggested at the meeting in June was Der Spiegel, the German weekly with a similar left-leaning point of view as the other two papers. Just like Assange had in his hacking days, he was using the international reach of the internet to avoid legal punishment in any one country. The agreement between WikiLeaks, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Der Spiegel was a first in journalism. But the more newspapers joined the operation, the more complex it got. Then there was the processing of the documents. Again, this batch had 91,000 of them. It would take thousands of hours just to read it all. This was another reason Assange included the newspapers. While the newspapers toiled over the documents in June and July of 2010, Assange stayed on the move and drummed up publicity for the impending document publication. He never turned down a media appearance. If he needed to stay somewhere for more than a few days, he holed up at London's Frontline Club. It was a social club founded in the early 2000s for war correspondents, and it was owned by a wealthy WikiLeaks supporter named Vaughn Smith. In early July, Assange made arrangements to head to Sweden to give a seminar. The organizer of the seminar, a 31-year-old activist named Anna Arden, 
would be out of town on a business trip and invited him to stay at her vacant apartment. This way, her organization, the Brotherhood, wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. It would be nice to go to Stockholm, he thought. It was one of the places where he was considering setting up additional servers for WikiLeaks. Like Iceland, it was friendly to whistleblowers. More servers meant more protection from hacks and DDoS attacks. Sweden seemed like a perfect place. Plus, Assange was fond of Swedish women. Finally, on July 25, 2010, WikiLeaks and its newspaper allies began publishing the Afghanistan war documents. There were 91,000 reports in total, going back as early as 2004. They detailed the war's day-to-day -day activities in granular detail. Overall, they painted a picture of a war that was almost doomed from the start. Since falling to the American-led invasion in 2001, the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies had gone to ground, waging an insurgent war that showed no signs of ending. America and its allies were fighting a shadowy enemy that blended in with the local population, and as a result, innocent people were being hurt and killed at an alarming rate. The reports revealed that those insurgents were receiving money and weapons from Iran and Pakistan. The Iran connection wasn't that surprising. The country was, and is, a staunch enemy of the United States. But Pakistan was supposed to be one of the United States' allies in the region. In reality, it was aiding insurgents who were killing coalition troops. The reports also revealed the existence of Task Force 373. This was a top-secret special forces unit whose objective was to neutralize Taliban and al-Qaeda leadership. On the night of June 17, 2007, Task Force 373 members received intelligence that a senior al-Qaeda leader was hiding in a compound in Afghanistan's Patika province that included a mosque and a madrasa. Task Force 373 members decided to assassinate the leader. They used HIMARS, an experimental GPS-guided artillery system that can be mounted from the back of a truck. From nearly 40 miles away, HIMARS launched its payload. All five missiles hit their target, but when coalition forces arrived, they discovered that not only were the leaders nowhere to be found, the mosque was full of civilians. Seven children were killed. Then there were the hundreds of accidental shootings. One common tactic for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda was the use of suicide bombs in cars and motorcycles. Nervous coalition soldiers could never be sure if a vehicle was dangerous or not. As a result, they'd gunned down hundreds of innocent Afghani civilians who'd done nothing worse than drive a little too close to a security checkpoint. And whenever U.S. forces killed a civilian, on average, it paid relatives about 100,000 Afghani, or about $1,100 U.S. in compensation. Like collateral murder, the Afghanistan war reports set governments and the media ablaze with statements, rebuttals, analysis, debates, and speculation. If Collateral Murder was a breakout debut album, the Afghanistan war reports were a likely anticipated follow-up. And so far, it looked like WikiLeaks and Julian Assange had delivered. When Julian Assange boarded a plane to Stockholm in early August 2010, he knew they were probably hostile foreign agents watching him. He knew his movements were being tracked. He knew that this would be the way things probably would be for the rest of his life. Well, so be it, Assange thought. Let them come. Since 2007, the world's most powerful governments had tried everything to stop Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Everything short of full-on assassination. 
and so far, they had not succeeded. As the plane to Stockholm took off, Assange finally let himself relax. He'd kicked the hornet's nest, but he wasn't afraid of being stung. A few weeks later, Anna Arden and Sophia Weiland entered a police station in downtown Stockholm. Before approaching the front desk, Arden paused and turned to the younger woman. You ready? She asked. Weiland nodded. She didn't look entirely ready. But then again, Arden didn't feel entirely ready either. Both women understood the ramifications of what they were about to do. At best, they were looking at several years of hell. The person they were going up against was powerful, influential, and most of all, vindictive. But there was no turning back. They had to do what they came here to do, even if it meant risking everything. Finally, Arden approached the front desk and introduced herself. The desk clerk phoned back to the detectives, and one of them soon emerged. Fortunately, a woman. The detective brought Arden and Wyland to an interview room. After exchanging pleasantries, all three women took a seat. Tell me what brought you here today, the detective began. Arden took a deep breath. My friend and I are here because a man sexually assaulted us, she said. The detective nodded and began taking notes. It started off consensual, Arden said, and then it wasn't. It was the same for me, Wylan added. The next day, Julian Assange was about 160 feet underground. He was getting a tour of an old Cold War bunker. It had been built to protect the people of Stockholm in the event of a nuclear attack. Since the Cold War ended, it was a useless piece of real estate. That made it the perfect place to set up a new server for WikiLeaks. As the tour ended, Assange returned to the surface, and his burner phone rang. It was his second-in-command, Daniel Domscheit-Berg. Julian, what did you do? Domscheit-Berg demanded. Assange had no idea what he was talking about. There's a Swedish tabloid reporting that you're wanted for questioning in an investigation. Sexual assault. Assange's heart jumped into his throat. Apparently, the police investigation had been leaked to the press. Assange was in no mood to appreciate the irony. He feared that everything he built was about to come crashing down. On the next episode of Modem Mischief, part three and the conclusion of the story of Julian Assange. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app right now so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon or a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show plus monthly bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode was written and researched by Jim Rowley, mixed and mastered by Greg Bernhard, a.k.a. he's wanted in Sweden, but only for excessive meatball consumption. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to give us a follow on social media at Modem Mischief and slide into our DMs. Thanks for listening.